0: Welcome to Indy Matters,
1: the podcast from the Nevada Independent.
0: I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in smoky Reno.
1: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in slightly less smoky Las Vegas.
0: (laughs) On this week's episode of the podcast, you have a breakdown of ballot question one for us, Jacob, which, if passed, could pull the Board of Regents from the state constitution.
1: After that, reporter Michelle Rindells has an interview with former Nevada federal public defender Franny Forsman, who talks about why Nevada has a severe lack of public defenders in some rural Nevada counties and what's being done about it.
0: At the end of the show, we have a preview from a discussion between myself and Humberto Sanchez, our DC correspondent, which was taken from a longer discussion that we had on Facebook Live. We'll be holding these Facebook Live discussions regularly on a variety of topics suggested by readers.
1: But before we get to the rest of our show, I sat down with our healthcare reporter, Megan Messerly, to break down the newest numbers and latest developments of the coronavirus pandemic. Megan, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. All right. Before we get to anything else, as always, let's start with the numbers. So today we're recording on Friday, uh, September 11th. It's the morning. So considering all that, where do the numbers stand in Nevada?
2: Right, so we're sitting at about a little over 72,000 cases statewide in Nevada. Uh, we talked about before, you know, in these segments that cases have still continued to uh, trend down, which is largely driven by a decrease in cases in Clark County. We've seen cases in Washoe County, for instance, they've decreased a little bit, but they've been overall pretty stable, so that decrease that we're seeing statewide is really driven by what's happening in Clark County, naturally, because so much of the population in Nevada lives in Clark County. Looking at deaths, we're sitting at 1,430 deaths this morning. Uh, you know, We've talked before as well that uh, deaths tend to lag cases by about five weeks. And so as we started seeing these you know, decreasing trends with the cases, we were still seeing the number of deaths reported each day going up. And that's just because of that sort of delay. It takes a while for someone to get infected and require serious medical treatment. And then ultimately, if they're going to pass away from the illness, it just takes some time. So we expect to see a time delay with those numbers. So we are finally starting to see a decrease in deaths. It's still pretty slow. We're still seeing a significant number um, of deaths each day. The average number of deaths as of yesterday was about nine deaths, nine new deaths reported each day. So we're still seeing, you know, a significant death toll back um, before the before the state really started reopening, we were really down to about, you know, between one and two new deaths reported each day. Uh, So we're still, you know, much higher than we were before the state started reopening, um, but obviously better than where we were, even just a couple of weeks ago.
1: Okay, so I want to ask about the big uh, COVID news in Nevada this week, and that is the reopening or the allowed reopening of bars in Washoe and Pahrump. Can you break that down?
2: Yeah, so this happened at the Thursday meeting of the COVID-19 Mitigation and Management Task Force. They meet every Thursday at 10 a.m. to talk about what action counties that are experiencing an elevated risk of COVID-19 need to take. Many of the counties have been petitioning for weeks now to be able to have their bars reopen. And, and some were, for instance, Nye County petitioned uh, asking to have all of their bars outside of Pahrump. Uh, open because Pahrump's the major population center in Nye County, and they were granted that request, but bars still have remained closed in Clark County, all of Washoe County, uh, in Perump within Nye County, and in Elko County. And so uh, the counties have been asking sort of week over week, um, you know, reopening their bars. Obviously, a lot of bar owners, tavern owners have been struggling a lot and have been, you know, putting a lot of pressure on local government officials um, to, you know, advocate for this and have the task force allow them to reopen. And so was really interesting going into this meeting on Thursday, we expected that the task force wouldn't actually take any action on bars this week. Uh, They were supposed to wait until the following week because at the prior week's meeting they had said they were going to delay the conversation for two weeks. So what we actually saw happen though was um, a sort of surprise motion was made uh, asking to reopen the bars in Washoe County because the situation there is a little bit better. State officials who sit on the task force actually noted that Washoe County is just sitting a tiny bit above the thresholds that qualify it as an elevated risk county. So there's some, you know, talk of Washoe County may not even be on the list next week if they continue to trend in the right direction. And so task force members ultimately voted to allow Washoe County bars to reopen. And so there's some final uh, paperwork and details Washoe County needs to get to the task force before that can happen, but they're supposed to open no later than Wednesday at 11:59 p.m.
1: As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can go to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where Megan publishes a weekly story, Coronavirus Contextualize, that has all the numbers you need to know, or where you can find a data page full of the latest information. As always, Megan, thanks for joining me.
2: Happy to be here.
0: For 156 years, Nevada's Constitution has included the Board of Regents, that's the 13-member panel of elected officials tasked with governing the state's higher education system, and the eight institutions that fall within it. Now in 2020, Nevadans will get to vote on whether that inclusion was the right choice with Question 1, a ballot measure that would pull Regents from the Constitution. Our higher ed reporter Jacob Solis takes it from
1: here. Question 1 started life as Assembly Joint Resolution 5 shorthanded as AJR-5, back in 2017. Both then and now, the state lawmakers who drafted it say it's a badly needed update to an outdated system that too often tries to circumvent oversight from the legislature with its constitutional status. That includes AJR-5's author, former Assemblyman Elliot Anderson. Anderson says the push is about enforcing the checks and balances inherent to all other levels of American government. And it's not that the legislature is perfect. Uh, You know, legislature is imperfect, the Board of Regents is imperfect, and the whole idea is that imperfect bodies of government are supposed to be able to hold each other accountable and check and balance each other, and so that's really what question one is all about. Though it's not explicitly mentioned in AJR 5, much of the push for this change can be traced back to 2016. In April of that year, a records request from the Las Vegas Review-Journal revealed that the system's then-chancellor, Dan Kleitsch, had drafted a memo to legislators under an outside consultant's letterhead, during heated renegotiations of the system's funding formula in 2012. Legislators decried the memo as a deliberate deception meant to obfuscate and mislead the committee in charge of approving the new formula. Stephen Horsford, who at the time was serving as Nevada's Senate Majority Leader and chaired the committee in question, told the Review-Journal that the incident showed the legislature wasn't in charge and was being used as tools by higher education officials. Kleich denied wrongdoing at the time, and said the newspaper had misinterpreted emails that he had meant as jokes. Still, he resigned within a month of that story's publication, and AJR5 was born the next year. Opponents to question one have pushed back on those arguments, saying instead that question one would lead to increased bureaucracy and more red tape, all without improving outcomes for students. Among those opponents is former Chancellor Tom Riley.
2: How will this make the system uh, better for students? How will that advance uh, our graduation rates and retention rates and our research portfolio and our workforce output? And no one has been able to answer that. So if we're going to do a a pretty significant change in governance, there should be a better articulation about how that's going to advance the system.
1: Regent Trevor Hayes has called the measure a solution in search of a problem, and he openly criticized the legislature in a meeting after lawmakers voted to cut tens of millions from the higher education system's budget, amid otherwise massive budget shortfalls triggered statewide by the pandemic. Regent Laura Perkins, meanwhile, says she's concerned about the lack of a plan for exactly what comes next if question one is passed.
2: I see it as being a time to build the plane while you're
3: flying it and with no real metrics, um, meaning there's no um, numbers or positive proofs that the system that may or may not come out of this is better than the system that we have now
1: backers of question 1 have largely dismissed these concerns. That includes Chet Burton, a former president of Western Nevada College who also served a stint as the system's chief financial officer. He argues that voting against the change means accepting the status quo.
4: I don't know, you don't know, you know, a lot of people don't know
3: what the final product will look like, but I think that at least it gives us the opportunity to put together a working group and and bring the best minds together and look at
2: what's How other states handle it.
1: Hanging over all of this is another debate. Should Nevada even elect its regents at all? Nevada is among 29 states that use a single board to govern all of its higher education institutions, but it's the only state that still elects every single one of its regents in a general election. Most other states utilize some kind of appointee system, often relying on governors or legislatures to appoint or approve who gets to be a regent. Though question one wouldn't do anything to directly affect the structure or election of the board, both those for and against question one agree that removing the regents from the Constitution would make it easier for the legislature to do just that later down the line. Some regents say it's only a matter of time before it happens, and that it could mean the board is less responsive to voters.
2: Um, right now, there's 13 of us, and we represent 300,000 people, uh, mm-hmm. just shy of 300,000, and we drop it down. So you you actually would only have five representing the entire populace of the state. So it's, I mean, it's it's pretty much a congressional district for a part-time, $80 a day job.
1: That's Regent Jason Geddes. He and other critics have pointed to a 2019 bill, Senate Bill 354, which would have reduced the number of regents from 13 to 9, and would have made four of those positions appointed by the governor. For Gettys and other critics, the bill and others like it are proof positive of an underlying push to undo the system of elected regents. But the battle lines on that issue don't neatly align with those surrounding question one. Ex-Chancellor Riley, for instance, says he has no issue with a mixed elected appointed board. But ex-Assemblyman Anderson has been a vocal critic of SB 354, and even went so far as to help kill that bill once it made it to the Assembly in 2019. Among the broader debate over Question 1, there are few clear delineations among those for and against the change. Students and faculty across the state have taken to both sides, and as of September, few groups have taken official stands for or against the measure. That's not to say no groups have picked sides, though. Both the Las Vegas Metro Chamber of Commerce and the AFL-CIO have endorsed Question 1. With the former sending at least $10,000 to a pro question one super PAC earlier this year. That PAC, Nevadans for a Higher Quality Education, reported raising $115,000 through the second quarter of 2020. Most of that money, $105,000, came from one nonprofit, the Council for a Better Nevada. It's the same nonprofit that helped fund a ballot measure creating a state appellate court in 2014. And that helped fund a controversial gun background check initiative in 2016. As a legislatively referred constitutional amendment, that's the technical name for what Question 1 is, the measure officially needs to pass through the legislature twice and be approved by voters before it takes effect. It sailed through legislative sessions in 2017 and 2019, leaving this November's vote as the only hurdle left. For the Nevada Independent, I'm Jacob Solis.
0: If you want to read more about question one and other 2020 ballot questions, you can find Jacob's Reporting on the NevadaIndependent.com.
1: And now an interview between Franny Forsmond and our own Michelle Rendells on Rural Public Defenders.
5: We're here today with Franny Forsman. She is a former federal public defender in the District of Nevada and is now heading into retirement. But Franny, you've spent decades in Nevada in the world of public defense. We just saw in 2017 a lawsuit filed claiming that Nevada's system of public defense in the rural counties is violating constitutional rights of the Sixth Amendment, um, which guarantees the right to counsel. But it's been going on for a long time before that. Can you tell us kind of what happened in the years and decades leading up to 2017?
3: Oh, boy. I think that the, the state of indigent defense for Nevada probably first sort of sort of got some kind of focus in 1971 actually when the state public defender was created and it actually when the, in in 71 and, and in those early 70s nevada actually had a pretty good plan in place uh, there was a state public defender who covered most of the rural counties uh, those counties that weren't covered by the, the state public defender were only expected to come up with about 20 of the of the cost of indigent defense Over the years, that has now completely flipped. The state public defender now only represents the counties of Carson City County and Story County. The other counties all dropped away over the years because they felt it would be cheaper to do it on their own, which you can imagine what that led to. But now the state is only providing about 20% of the cost to the counties. And these little counties don't have money. I mean, they're just, you know, it's not like Clark and Washoe where they have some flexibility and they can respond to reforms or respond to pressure, you know, to improve the system. They have a very difficult time doing that. And and so in, oh, about t- 2007, the Nevada Supreme Court created the Indigent Defense Commission. And really, there, there was some other focuses, but the primary focus of a big chunk of our work was on the rural counties, finding out what was going on in the rural counties. We were hearing a lot of horror stories of of massive caseloads, of flat fee contracts where the lawyers expected to do any number of cases, no no limit on the number of cases for the same fee. Uh, No money for experts, no money for investigators, of nobody ever going to trial. And so hearing all of that there was a rural subcommittee, a lot of work was done with the rural counties just trying to get data. And so we, we did that, we got some data, but without any legislation that would provide some support to the counties to improve the system, the old term unfunded mandate, you know, anybody in the Nevada Supreme Court really wasn't in a position uh, to mandate that counties do certain things. And eventually, and thankfully, ACLU, national and local, a wonderful law firm, out of, actually it's an international law firm, where Melvin and Myers and myself, we all got together and filed this lawsuit in 2017, basically saying, you know, and, and I don't think the legislation that, that, that did go through in the last legislative session would, would have gone through at all without the lawsuit sort of looming over the, the head of the state and and so ultimately we we just we just settled it it's not over the lawsuit is still going to be hanging over the state for a while but we just settled the lawsuit with a lot of very specific things that that have to be done before they they're going to come into compliance with the settlement so we're very happy about that
5: and the lawsuit was pretty shocking when i first read it talking about what the conditions can be like if you're a defendant in a tiny county, you know, with a thousand people, but they have, you know, just as much authority as perhaps Clark County's, you know, prosecutorial
3: system. Yeah, people, people go to, people go to jail for a long time out of those little counties. You know, I, some people don't realize that the federal public defender handles folks in state prison in the, in the federal habeas arena in federal court. So we, Nevada probably has the most active and largest federal public defender of, unit that focuses solely on non-death state convictions because of some of the things that we were seeing. And so that, that's been the case for over 20 years. We've had, we've had that focus. So we, we were seeing what was happening in the world. We were seeing people, this is more recent, this is even when I was a federal defender, is it the recent case that I saw? A fellow with a very, very low IQ was pled to an offense, ultimately gave him 75 years in prison. But the point is, is that he, he did that within 35 days of the time that he met his lawyer. There was no investigation. There were no experts hired. The judge didn't know how low his IQ was. None of that happened. And and it all just went through very efficiently. And believe me, the due process clause is not always efficient and shouldn't always be efficient. But that's 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 more current stuff because we, we've got a lot of work to do to not only make sure that the counties are adequately supported and the lawyers are qualified and all of that, but to change the culture so that these practices that have built up over the years, you know, in the rural counties, because there's virtually no oversight of what's going on. It's not like you have a public defender office. You have some public defender offices in the rules, but they're not very, they're like three of them. Uh, in the other counties, there's, you know, the the, the system is overseen by county commissioners. The district attorney is heavily involved in the selection of the attorneys in these small counties, and and there's nobody from outside kind of looking at them and saying, you know, there's a case that went this way this many years ago. And you shouldn't be doing that, and and so the, all of that still has to be all of those reforms that we that we have agreed to with the state still have to be implemented.
5: Yeah, and I just kind of wanted to go over a couple highlights of the settlement and kind of what you were seeing that led to these provisions. And the first one, of course, is, is the fixed fee contracts you're describing. I think the, the original lawsuit said there was an example of someone that had almost 650 individual cases in a, yeah. a single year. Uh, tell me how that affects the ability to, to give any of those clients a fair shake
3: well, all you would have to do is to divide the, the the amount of money that the lawyer is getting on the flat fee contract by the number of cases, and you'll see that in some, I think I did it a few times, I did the math, and basically a felony case, one, one in one case, a felony case was worth about um, $200 for the whole, whole uh, existence of the representation. Of course, that would vary. And it, where you don't have a lot of cases, maybe the contract is adequate to allow you to do the time. But what we really were trying to get at was the disincentive, because you're basically competing against yourself. Supreme Court issued an order outlining flat fee contracts, and the but it, I it's not being fully complied with because there still is no oversight. There, the, what the counties did to try to comply with the order, say, well, they can ask for additional uh, fees, they can ask for additional expenses, that kind of thing. But if there still is a culture within the county that discourages asking for those fees, the lawyers aren't gonna do it and they're not gonna feel safe to do it. You know, so so that's part of that's gonna be part of the task of this new agency is to is to go out and ensure that the contracts are fair, encourage ensure that the contracts don't discourage the lawyers from vigorously litigating the cases.
5: And so what you're seeing, it sounds like was people just pleading down, pleading the cases every time and never taking it to trial and never really fighting?
3: The trial rate is very, very, very low. And, you know, a lot of people will say, don't look at the trial rate. Maybe these are lawyers and, and systems where the client's getting the best deal possible. And so they, so they, they should go ahead and plead. But here's the problem. The other thing that is that was very low in the, in the rural counties is the, is the use of investigators or the use of experts. You cannot plead a case unless you know what it's about, unless you know. Unless the client knows what defenses do I have, what options do I have, what mitigating evidence do I have. This, this recent case I talked about with the man with a the, with the very low IQ, it's just inexcusable that a lawyer would, would and, and there were all kinds of indications that this was a problem. You know, he's on disability. Wait a minute, maybe I should check that out. None of that was looked at before the guy was just pled guilty to a case, as I say, exposed him to 75 years, and he got 75 years. So, and you guys are going to,
5: as part of the settlement, call for a workload
3: analysis.
5: Yes, um, yes,
3: one of the first things. Correct. Tell us what that looks like. It's it's basically it's a it's a really a massive data data gathering of the time spent on cases, the kinds of cases that people are handling and then trying to come up with numbers of how much time should a case take uh, so, that, so that you can, you know, build into contracts with lawyers to do this work, for instance, that because we'll know how much time it takes, then we'll be able to, to set a contract with the number of cases you should be taking. Without knowing that, you can't do that. And, and another
5: part you guys wanted to address is having clients give feedback about uh-huh. the quality of their their
2: lawyer.
3: What do you hope to accomplish with that? As the head of the Federal Public defenders Office for all of those years, 22 years, we would get complaints from clients and feedback from clients. You have to filter it. You know, I mean, you're, you're talking to people who are probably the worst, you know, worst time of their lives when, when they're dealing with a lawyer. They've got a lawyer that they didn't pick. They're being prosecuted by a government who's paying the lawyer that they didn't pick. You know, so a lot of clients are really unhappy and anxious and, and, and in the process. But that doesn't mean that if you start getting the feedback about, I didn't see my lawyer uh, before before I was got called into the courtroom, where I, I kept trying to find, talk to my lawyer, but he or she wouldn't take a, a collect phone calls so I could never talk to him. You start getting the same repeated complaints, then we would hope to be able to, to have the consumer, the customer, which is the client uh, be able to provide feedback so that we could use that in the process of evaluation of the of the lawyer.
5: We're obviously in a a recession. Um, do you have concerns that the legislature kind of just won't meet the needs that you guys identify in this study? And then what happens at that point?
3: Then what? That's what that lawsuit is still hanging out there. If the state doesn't doesn't step up and. You know, this is a constitutional right, and locking people up is a very serious thing. And so, you know, of course we know of all the competing social services and, you know, all of the other stuff that has come along with this virus. You know, all of those things are are important and must be done, but obviously my point of view is is that if we're still going to lock people up, now if we stop locking people up, that's a different story, but that's not going to happen. And so as long as we're going to be locking people up, we're going to have to come up with a view. And if and if they don't come up with the money, and you know the, the the county says we can't do it, and we don't have the money to do it, and the state says we're not giving you the money to do it, lawsuit's right there. We go right back in, and we start deposing people, and 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 proceeding with the lawsuit, and, and to come out with the same result when we came out with the settlement. So,
5: you know, and this is like enshrining the, the Sixth Amendment, right? The one we don't always think about. I, I, I think about it all the
3: time. What does it kind of mean to you? Oh, it's, it's, it's huge for me. You know, it, it, I guess I just, I, you know, when I, I still dabble a little bit with consulting with people. and I do an awful lot of mentoring with young lawyers and that kind of thing. And I still, if, if I can impact the system in such a way that people that I don't even know and never will even know, you know, will now have a lawyer that they can trust, a lawyer that they've spent enough time with, and be able to go into this extremely scary situation, which is called our criminal justice system. If, if I know that I've impacted the system enough that, that there's, there's these unknown people out there that are getting it, I'm, that, makes me, that makes me really happy. So,
5: Well, thank you so much for talking with me about this. This is really fascinating how it just is kind
3: of two different worlds, you know, urban versus rural. Yeah, yeah. Well, now let me, I can tell you the urban, Washoe and Clark, were in terrible shape back in 1992 when the, the Supreme Court created the task force on racial and economic disparity, but it ended up with a big focus on Clark and Washoe, particularly Clark and the, and the, the state of their indigent. So the, we started there, and then, the, and then uh, when the, the Indigent Defense Commission was, was set up, there were huge changes that were made. In Clark and Washoe, because were, the caseloads were out of control, Clark. My, my clients are, are are not the kinds of constituents that politicians listen to, and so and so they're they're sort of down the line. Well, your client was charged with this horrible crime, so they're they're hard to advocate for. And they were we were able to make a, a quick impact in Clark and Washoe because those counties were booming and they had money. And they you know they were able to quickly and say, Yeah, you're absolutely right, now that you turned the light on it, we have to do something. So they have been, they 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 have not you know, they've not been without criticism either. So so then then once that part was pretty much done, they, they do pretty well in both of those two counties. The rules had to be looked at. It shouldn't make a difference that if you drive up the road to Perump, it shouldn't make a difference in, in what you, what, if you're poor, mm-hmm. whether or not, what, what the quality of the lawyer, the quality, you know, whether you're getting investigated or not, it shouldn't make a difference because you're 40 miles down the road. That doesn't make any sense. Well, thank you so much again
5: for your time. And yes. um, yeah, I guess we'll have to keep an eye on this as it moves through the process.
0: All right, and now we're at the last segment of the podcast, and Jacob Solis is here with me. Hello, Jacob. I feel like the two of us don't get to sit down and chat other than when we do the intro and outro. Uh,
1: we almost never get to do it, Joey. So thank you for noticing.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm glad to be chatting with you. Um, but we're actually going to cut to another chat I had with someone else here in a second. But uh, you know, you and I are going to kind of, kind of promo it a little bit, which is just we're going to start doing these Facebook Live uh, weekly events, or hopefully weekly at least. Um, with various reporters and staff members um, at the Indy. Can you kind of tell me you know, what they're about and what we're looking to get out of them?
1: That's right. The goal here is to sort of give the the viewers, the listeners, the readers at home, um, just a clear line to us, right? If you want to ask questions, if you want to um, watch a chat between usually Joey and one of our reporters and really break down what they're reporting on, that's what this is for. Um, and so, yeah, like you said, we're hoping to provide these uh, weekly or, or somewhere around there um, with all kinds of different reporters at the Indie so that those reporters can really break down um, their beats and what they're doing and, and hopefully answer the questions that you guys might have.
0: Yeah, and, and you know we'll have specific topics that we're you know everyone reports on. You know, uh, Jacob, you got higher ed, and so hopefully we'll have you come in and talk about that at some point. Jackie covers education. Uh, we've got Daniel with the environment. Humberto, which is the one we're gonna hear from in a little bit, um, is in DC. Um, I'm not really sure what Riley covers, but whatever he covers, <laughs> we'll <laughs> we'll talk to him. Um, you know, we've got all these fantastic reporters, uh, and we just wanted you guys to have access to you know if if there's a very specific topic you want to hear about we can kind of kind of delve into that on these these little live live shows and they're posted on the Facebook afterward so if you uh, if you miss them don't worry you can uh, you can still suggest new topics and you can still watch the discussions there so um i guess we'll cut over to humberto uh, but jacob it's been nice to chat very briefly just for a little bit outside of the intro and outro
1: <laughs> yeah good talking to you
0: let's uh, i guess we can just get going with the first question which is just kind of you know uh, Nevada state senators. We've got Catherine Cortez Masto, Jackie Rosen, and then uh, in the House, we've got Dina Titus, um, Stephen Horsford, Susie Lee, and Mark Amaday. Um, you know what are they seeing with this relief package that Congress is looking to uh, to vote on? Um, I know that one's been brought up. Um, you know how are negotiations ne- negotiations going with that, and um, especially with things like unemployment?
4: Um, we are uh, at a stalemate, just as we were before they went on break. And our delegation has fallen on part uh, along party lines as 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 Congress has on these two things. Um, so that the House passed a bill called the Heroes Act in May. It was a total of about three billion, three trillion dollars, I should say, and it, it included things like a trillion dollars for aid to states, money for schools, and uh, money for testing, all kinds of stuff like that. A lot of Democratic priorities that. that Republicans didn't see eye die on, and so we had the the Democratic proposal. And months later, yet weeks later, the 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 Republican Senate Republicans put out a, a bill. It was about a trillion dollars, and they, they were off on a lot of stuff. They they don't see. They they didn't include uh, any of the trillion dollars for the state aid, um, and uh, there was just many uh, points of contention in those negotiations. And both sides have dug in. They show no signs of, of, of giving in. Uh, you had some comments from uh, Speaker Pelosi today, and, and uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, basically, uh, you know, criticizing the the uh, a Senate another Senate bill. Actually, <laughs> Republicans today also unveiled, or it was yesterday, I should say, uh, a skinny version of their bill, which was totaled about three hundred billion dollars. And they're going to vote on that actually Thursday. It's, it, everyone agrees it's going to fail because they need uh, sixty votes, and Republicans are looking to show that they have fifty-one votes for that. They have their their fifty-one Republicans will will vote for it. But the, the real uh, fundamental difference is though they don't have they don't they don't agree on how much they should provide. Well, the the, yeah. the Democrats threw out that three trillion dollar bill, Republicans came back with a one trillion dollar bill. Then Democrats said, let's, let's settle on $2 trillion. But Republicans said, we don't have the votes for that. We, we, a lot of our folks think that we've done enough. And, uh, and, and, and you know, unemployment is one of the big uh, points of contention. And uh, Democrats, uh, there was a $600 a week bonus payment that people were getting that, that, that expired at the end of August. Democrats want to bring that back and extend that through the end of the year. And Republicans want to cut that to 300 uh, a week rather than 600 a week. And, uh, and you got people like Mark Amadei who, who basically think that th- this is a disincentive to folks to return to work, uh, it's particularly in a place like Nevada where you have more service sector jobs. And uh, you could be making more uh, with uh, an extra $600 a week than you would at your regular job. He thinks that, that makes it hard for people to come back or hard for uh, businesses to keep employees. So that's a big bone of contention. And so uh, it's 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 really it's really interesting to see how this will play out this week. You know, we'll, we'll have this bill fail and folks will retreat back into their partisan corners and uh, in the Senate. And it's, it's going to be um, going to be interesting, but at the same time, also oh, predictable. All right. Yeah, it's it's it seems
0: like it's uh, it's going to be an interesting time for for Congress to be coming back from a recess um, and just want to let our viewers know that if you have any questions, you can leave them in the comments the uh, live stream and a I'll get to them with help from our our, our lovely uh, assistant Michelle Rendell, who's running the back end of this for me. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, we're moving into an election year. Um, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, um, are in Donald Trump's up for re-election. How does this kind of stimulus package, um, like, how does this affect the stimulus package that we might
4: see um, moving into this election year? I think it imperils it. Like, most uh, legislation, as you get to the as you get to an election there's, it's less likely to to come about. There's less incentive to, to uh, come to agreement or to compromise. And so I think the longer we wait, the more likely it won't happen. Um, You had, uh, and also uh, the, the, we're coming up on a deadline here for the end of the fiscal year, which is September 30th. And, Mm -hmm. um, and the speaker and uh, the White House uh, represented by uh, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin has said uh, that they won't they will come together to pass a short-term spending bill. Uh, at, at the, if Congress didn't act on September 30th, the, the funding would stop for the federal government and the government will shut down, which nobody wants. They agreed to to, have a, to come to an agreement on a clean, meaning uh, a bill that just essentially is on autopilot and continues spending at current levels until after the election. There's a debate as to how long that should be, but they'll 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 figure that out, and they'll uh, and so once they have that figured out, that even takes away more of incentive to do, to compromise on any kind of pandemic relief. So the, the election is really our, our, our window is closing, if if not already closed. It's it's a uh, and we'll see. You know, a lot of people are still hurting, so it's it's going to be hard, uh, and and people will use that in the election because. Um, you know, the Democrats have been very critical of the, re- of the pandemic response, while, while the Republicans think they've done, you know, as good a job in a, you know, once in a hundred year situation. And um, we'll see whether voters agree or who voters agree with. All right. We have,
0: uh, it looks like two or potentially three more questions. One of them uh, from the Nevada Independent Editor, John Ralston himself. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't think I understand his <laughs> question or the reference he's making, but he does want to know uh, where his chicken wings are.
4: <laughs> I, I was in uh, the suburbs of Buffalo, New York, uh, for the past two weeks before I coming back for this week. And John Walston is a Buffalonian. He's uh, from Buffalo, and he is a big fan of Duck's Chicken Wings, and uh, they are they are delicious. and they were <laughs> And they were doing delivery. They were doing. A, they will come. Oh. Do the uh, drive up kind of delivery thing. I did mm-hmm. not get a chance to go because uh, it would be frowned upon if I didn't eat my mother-in-law's cooking.
0: Oh, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> that makes that makes perfect sense. All right, well, that was John's question about buffalo, but we have a, a, a real question. <laughs> Not that John's wasn't, but maybe a, <laughs> maybe a more focused question. And again, that was Humberto Sanchez talking with me on Facebook Live, and you can hear the full interview on Facebook, and we'll be doing more of those very soon.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
0: We'd like to thank Franny Forsman, Michelle Rendell's, Humberto Sanchez, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week.
1: If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you'd like to listen.
0: If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email us at joey at the or jacob at the And if you want to sponsor the podcast, you can email editors at the
1: Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies, and you can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Additional music on this week's episode comes from Lance Conrad and Storyblocks.
0: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato.
1: And I'm reporter and producer, Jacob Solis.
0: And we'll talk to you next week.
1: You've seen Thirty Rock?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I actually did you watch the like COVID one they did? It's pretty, Absolutely not. It was pretty funny. It's pretty good.
1: I refuse to engage with like COVID television content. It just <laughs> does not appeal to me.
0: It is strange.